0: This week on the Nonprofit News Feed, giving you some news from February 7th, where we're talking about some issues at Crisis Text Line and data sharing, as well as a big GoFundMe controversy around uh, some truckers in Canada. Nick, how's it going?
1: It's going good, George. So we have two pretty meaty stories to start us off. So I'll dive right into it. The first story is about the organization Crisis Text Line. And as cited in the newsletter, we're basing this off of reporting by Politico, but the story is being printed in other outlets. The nonprofit organization Crisis Text Line has just announced that it's ended its data sharing relationship with its for-profit spinoff organization, Loris.ai. Loris.ai was created um, as a, essentially, revenue vehicle which uses anonymized data from Crisis Text Line services um, to then be sold as uh, informing customer service software. And Crisis Text Line is a text-based suicide and mental health hotline, so folks who are experiencing issues or potentially contemplating suicide or self-harm, are able to text Crisis Text Line. And as it turns out that that data, um, it comes out, was being anonymized, but sent to the for-profit organization, LORIS. Um, There was a lot of criticism of this practice coming from both data privacy experts, as well as even uh, lawmakers, including Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. Um, And Crisis Text Line has announced that it is ending that data-sharing relationship. But George, what's your take on this? And I will add the disclaimer that Crisis Text Line is a former client of Holwell.
0: Yeah, what's more, also on that, I was the former Chief Technology Officer of DoSomething.org. Crisis Text Line coming from the texting program originally uh, that Do Something had evolved from as a result of seeing the true need in the community, and you know it's hard to see this in the moment. I think the narrative here was that this was a way for Crisis Text Line, which at the time, you know, when this relationship was created, you know, frankly wasn't uh, wasn't swimming in revenue based on nine nineties. You know, they were around two and a half million and didn't have enough support potentially. And so this was uh, maybe a way of saying, hey, how can we drive some some revenue while keeping you know the PII, personally identifiable information of people texting anonymously at training uh, an algorithm that you could then make money off of. Um, And so in that narrative, you know, I can see where board members at that time may have thought that like, all right, this is a way forward because the funding's not there. Fast forward to most recent 990 where crisis text line has you know over 48 million, 49 million in, in revenue grants and support and still not seeing a whole lot, according to 990s, from uh Loris in, in revenue. And you're like, well, wait a minute. How can we justify and think about using this data? And, and this is a this is a new field. And I think especially when you're saying we are in the the nonprofits serving the public arena, you know, health data is uh incredibly sensitive. And even if you're like, no, 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 you don't understand. It's, it's anonymous. You're still powering a for-profit tool that are helping companies from, you know, data that has been gotten under the agreement, uh, the agreement that it would be protected used in order to, to help uh, and not sell. And and, uh, like, that's, you know, at the core part of it. So you can spin it any way you want and be like, Oh, it wasn't technically shared or it was, I agree with this decision to stop sharing and, Unfortunately, it has come to such national attention where I hope the reputation of Crisis Text Line uh, continues because the work they do is so critical. Any question of that? Go to Crisis Trends, you know, CrisisTrends.org to see the volume of support they offer to people in need in crisis, and you know that that's it's a powerful tool. And I hope that they can uh they can push through this and and, and move forward. But this has garnered a lot of attention. And, and the downside is that others who are looking to innovate and push forward and use more data and more tech to improve the lives of people that potentially are vulnerable, like aren't hopefully set back as a result of this, either from funding standpoints or being, oh, we can't touch anything with regard to data, but also a reminder, when you're in that room, the ethical compass matters quite a bit because you have to consider um, not just how it looks, but generally how it is. This is a tough one for me, to be honest. Makes me sad.
1: Yeah, George, I appreciate you. You're sharing your your thoughts there. And I know this is one that's, that's close to you and us at Whole Whale, um, but we hope that they're able to weather the storm and they do do such tremendous work. Right. And there was such a gap, there was such a need that was being fulfilled. Um, the barrier to be able to text for help is so much lower than being able to even pick up a phone. Right. So there were a lot of people, uh, presumably who are falling through the cracks, who were, who have now, uh, incredibly important service, um, at their disposal. So we hope that, uh, despite this controversy that that um, like incredible support of this organization offers. um, Yeah. Continues to to be offered. Moving along to our next story. This is another complicated one, but this is about GoFundMe being at the center of an international dispute (laughs) over funds to anti-vaccine mandate, Trucker protests. I know there's a lot of words, but uh, if anyone's been following news out of Canada, a cohort, cohort's the wrong word, a um,
0: <laughs> caravan,
1: <laughs> a group caravan, that's the word I was looking for, of truckers in trucks have descended on Ottawa and are starting to amass in other cities in Canada um, in protest over. Vaccine mandates, in the specific case, it's uh, mandates involving transnational truckers between the U.S. and Canada. Those truckers need to be vaccinated, apparently, under a new rule. Um, but it, the implications are kind of just more broadly with uh, the Canadian government's, uh, you know, vaccine mandates and uh, you know countermeasures, that sort of thing. Um, but as reported by the Washington Post, a GoFundMe fundraiser. Um, set up by the convoy, generated over $8 million in funds. And before GoFundMe intervened, approximately $1 million of those funds had been distributed. The problem with this is that these truckers, um, you know, the right to lawful and peaceful assembly is something that both us and Canadians uh, hold dear. However, it's extremely disruptive to the point of being... um, totally disrupting the lives of, of countless people. And the problem with this is that you have money flowing in from all over the place, America, all over the world, going to fuel these protests in Canada and GoFundMe happens to be the platform at the center of this controversy. Now GoFundMe kind of turned the off switch off of this fundraiser. Um, But unfortunately for them, the controversy (laughs) didn't end because now they're facing the ire of conservative lawmakers, both in Canada and in the United States, saying they are violating free speech. And this is a really complicated one. I think we'll continue to see um, as the ubiquitous of kind of decentralized fundraising becomes more and more prominent as it relates to otherwise fringe movements, right? This movement's super disruptive. Um, I should note that now the caravan is fundraising money on another platform that has vowed not to ban them. So they're going to get that money one way or another. But (laughs) George, what's the take on this? And how does GoFundMe even start to address some of the ethical concerns of this sort of thing?
0: Yeah, money certainly finds a way. And I think you know there's the peaceful right to assembly for sure, and this is being called the the Freedom Convoy, and that word is far more loaded in these United States, and that convoy is full of a lot more United States tax paying citizens than we may realize. I was actually talking to somebody in uh, currently Toronto, and you know they're you know talking about how this is this is going on in their backyard, and they're like, yeah, we see a lot of American flags, like. At what point are we talking about, not to be extreme, but an occupying force being funded by American dollars so American citizens can block roads, which is not part of peaceful assembly. It's dangerous in the middle of the winter to block and choke off access points to a city, shutting down commerce, funded by Americans. If that's not an occupying force, let me flip it around and say to, you know, to whoever's narrating this. Uh, I don't know. Let's just say you're, I don't know, bordering Ukraine and you want to, I don't know, block off an entire border or system or area. And let's just say you send in uh, uh, trucks, okay, in to block off, I don't know, a city, we'll call it Kiev. And I don't know, maybe it's Russian fund. Like there has to be some like clear sanity checks here because people are watching. And just saying like, oh, it's just about freedom and rights. It's like, ah, uh, if it were supporting Canadian only led peaceful, like absolutely send the dollars, let them get there. But like, there's a lot of nuance here. And there's a significant amount of problems of pushing an American, uh, an American political idea um, through financial vehicles, such as GoFundMe or others, but like money's going to find a way to do it. But if you are a major player, Um, I don't think you can give airtime to that type of of funding and disruptive action that potentially has deadly consequences. Um, That's not hyperbole.
1: Yeah, George, I agree with you. And it also has diplomatic consequences. Um, The State Department all the time gets accused and is put in tough situations by money american money going into foreign conflicts or at least that's oftentimes governments say oh this person's being such and such funded by the americans that's a a common trope whether true or not um this poses lots of problems for uh you know kind of extrapolating larger out um kind of american diplomatic efforts and kind of uh undermines uh, the state department. And, you know, of course, we're really good friends with Canada <laughs> or next door neighbors, but to your point, um, where something similar to happen in a much more fragile geopolitical situation, um, the problem could potentially be much, much larger. So an interesting thing, uh, well, this is a developing story. These protests are ongoing in Canada, kind of wild, quite frankly. So we'll see, uh, what the Trude- Trudeau government's move is, but... Something we'll keep an eye on.
0: Yeah, the the hypocrisy here is just hilarious. I'm just in my mind imagining what if unvaccinated, I don't know, say people from our southern border friends in Mexico were coming over the border. And then, oh, wait a minute, you are in a riot over this because that's immigration in. And oh, look at these uh, folks coming into our country and then like causing chaos. Like, truly, wow. i really... I gotta leave it there because um, there's too many analogous, ridiculous, mental models to apply here, where none of them none of them add up to a coherent policy.
1: Yeah, <laughs> for sure. That is fair. That is fair. All right. Shall we go into our news summary, George? <laughs> I
0: feel like I'm way too spicy for news summary. All
1: right. Yeah. Absolutely. We can take it. We got some uh, some good ones here. Um, this first one, I think, is really important. Um, this is about a settlement reached between uh, Native American tribes in the United States with Johnson & Johnson over the opioid epidemic. Um, so as it turns out that J&J is going to pay $590 million um, in a settlement to various tribes, including um, Cherokee Nation and and other nations. Um, Purdue Pharma has also already committed at least tens of millions uh, to tribes and um, settlement. But unfortunately, money does not solve the problem of human lives, right? I guess this money is going to go to addiction recovery programs and all sorts of things, but it doesn't absolve them of of the harm that's been done, particularly in these communities. And And one statistic that just boggles the mind, um, to quote from this New York Times article, in 2016, for example, Oglala Lakota County in South Dakota, home to the Oglala Lakota tribe, had an opioid-related death rate of 21 people per 100,000. That is borderline a COVID death, like, I like, guess it's crazy. Um, and it was more than twice the state average. So uh, this article goes into how um, particularly indigenous communities are hit the hardest by the opioid epidemic. So I guess it's a good thing that they're getting money to, to go into these programs and then try to help people. But man, it's the the damage is staggering.
0: A good precedent for all, you know, big pharma to be aware of that you know, the, the drugs you create have a real responsibility and impact on the community. And the fact that this went so long and so ignored, uh, you know, we're, we're going to look back at this time unfavorably at the, at the scale of damage done by companies improving their bottom line and greasing the wheels to over prescribe a deadly opioid, not nearly enough, you know, just it, um, it, it is it is good to see at least some of this start to happen, but I expect more hopefully to come uh, because the, the precedent being set here.
1: All right. Our next story, this one's a lighter one, maybe, um, is about cryptocurrency users creating decentralized autonomous organizations referred to as DAOs. And George, I'm not even going to try. What's what's <laughs> Dow, <laughs> what's <Dow>. happening here?
0: <laughs> <laughs> what's going on here? Uh, decentralized Autonomous Organizations, DAOs, are coming up quite a bit where, you know, again, also nonprofits are playing, 501c3s, nonprofits and foundations are playing massive roles in the way that a lot of these uh, cryptocurrency platforms are beginning to take shape, you know, looking at uh, that structure. So it's like for the public good run by the public and think of a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization, a DAO as like, frankly, it's just some project management software where a bunch of people can organize, vote and control the decisions that the group is trying to make. And it's potentially in the most optimistic sense, uh, a large way of how maybe future uh, corporations may be structured to give more governance control to the folks that work there, folks that are part of it. And, you know, choosing a a nonprofit is, uh, is interesting. And that may be a big boom if it like becomes the pathway of, um, of how it's taxed and how it's done, because it's not in the true sense of like, oh, here's our CEO and here's our, you know, normal governance. It's actually, uh, maybe a perfect match. So it's, it's interesting to see how, uh, Nonprofit structures might be leveraged in our uh, new fun wild west of blockchain tech.
1: We'll see. <laughs> we'll see where this takes us. <laughs> okay. George, question. Unrelated question. Um, when do nonprofits have to start worrying about the metaverse? Tuesday
0: of February 2nd 2027.
1: That's I don't even know specific. if that's the right
0: day for that day, but like that that specific day uh-huh. uh, yeah when do you have to start worrying about the metaverse I, I I would say there's a lot of major shifts that you can like look back and so ask way back in the 90s like when do we need a website? Um you know you need a website we need a website and when enough of your audience is there you should know enough uh, to see what it is right now the metaverse is a branding exercise truly is branding it is not an actual specific technology whatsoever there isn't a like oh if we're not there like no one will find us like nope not a thing um i think the way to pay attention to the quote metaverse is to take a step back realize it for a branding stunt and then in the meantime go get yourself a way to accept cryptocurrency you know, full disclosure, the giving block is a great source for that. They're a current client of ours. They've been on the podcast. I would say crawl, walk, run, start there. All right. Also, 2027, February 2nd, mark the calendar. You must be
1: there. George, (laughs) I'm going to create a meeting on our calendar. We'll, we'll, We'll chat then. All right. Our next story is also about a current client. Um, this is about the Jed Foundation, which has received a $15 million gift from Mackenzie Scott, um, working with the Jed Foundation's um, mental health resources in both high schools and college campuses. Um, this is a really exciting gift for them, uh, a recognition of the truly uh, both amazing work of the Jed Foundation and also the ex- very large and substantial need of our students right now um, for access to mental health resources. And this these programs are designed to help schools uh, increase the capacity to, to help students through these uh, trying times, but really exciting gift. Anything else to add?
0: I would say we have run a very dangerous national experiment for the past two years, no matter what side of the fence you are on about school closures, risks to young people and COVID. uh, The truth of the matter is this has been a massive psychological experiment and it has taken a toll to the tune of 18.8% of high school students having reported serious thoughts of suicide. I'll just pause on that and say, like, that doesn't express need far, far above, far, far above anywhere it needs to be. The social deprivation experiment that has been run on uh, high school and younger uh, children is going to have downstream consequences. And I think this is a spot on gift with a great organization. Full disclosure, Jed Foundation is a uh, client of ours. Uh, I don't know if you mentioned that or not, but uh, great to see it and hopefully more to come because there's a lot of work here to be done.
1: Absolutely. We'd love to see it. Our last story related to philanthropy is about Melinda French Gates has pledged to no longer give the bulk of her wealth to the Gates Foundation. Um, Of course, the somewhat infamous split um, between uh, Bill and Melinda Gates last year um, led to lots of Big questions about what would happen to the Gates Foundation and its funding. And it at least it looks like in this case, um, Alinda Gates is going to start diversifying um, her giving into other organizations, which I think is a great move. Um, helping other organizations level up. You know, Gates is one of the biggest, uh, largest, um, but there's lots of need out there as well. Um, so interesting to see how this plays out.
0: Yeah, and also. There's news out there the other week that the Gates Foundation getting four new board members and making that larger transition uh, to um, to new leadership. Be interesting to see how that may shift, uh, giving priorities. I uh, like this quote from uh, Miss French Gates, uh, who says, "I recognize the absurdity of so much wealth being consecrated." Concentrated in the hands of one person, I believe only responsible thing to do with a fortune this size is to give it away as thoughtfully and impactfully as possible. Very interesting to see, and we put these stories together for a reason. Between uh, between Gates and Mackenzie Scott, like two you know two major now women in the philanthropy industry, and we're curious to see how they you know work in concert, work together, or even just work in general to to really show the way of how uh, the hyper wealthy interact with the nonprofit sector.
1: Absolutely. I'm sure we'll have more interesting stories along this thread to come. George, how about a feel good story?
0: Yes, please. One one, please.
1: One. Okay. I got, I got you. Um, this is, George, you know what's coming up this weekend?
0: Uh, the puppy bowl. I have it on my calendar pup- every year, the puppy bowl,
1: the puppy bowl. That's that's right. America's most watched event. The puppy bowl is coming this Sunday <laughs> and has nothing to do with national sports. Um, but if you are interested in the national sports, um, I couldn't even tell you who's playing, um, this sports, super, game. Sports, the sports game, sports, game ball. sports, game, ball. the big one. Yeah. The big one. Um, rugby, whatever. Um, <laughs> Super Soul Party, a nonprofit started by a New York-based filmmaker and influencer, um, will have Super Bowl parties in 35 cities um, during the Sunday Super Bowl. And uh, the whole idea is that these parties um, will benefit um, homeless New Yorkers and um, and, and invite them in, um, and, and give them a chance to, to kind of, uh, partake and, uh, just supporting these people, um, recognizing that making connections can be, uh, really important and just a, a cool organization, uh, kind of spreading the love and, uh, and helping people where they're at on the big day.
0: I like this also because the, the point K makes in here is that, the Super Bowl is essentially a, a U.S. holiday, and it's always an opportunity. Any holiday, any cultural gathering, especially when it's positive, uh, to layer on a fundraising idea and a way for your audience to connect uh, around that for either fundraising or, or giving back. And so, I like this uh, example and and what they're doing um, inside of, of New York and other cities to uh, helping. Uh, offer things like dignity bags to uh, people experiencing homelessness in, uh, in these cities. It's awesome. Love seeing it. As always, Nick, thank you very much for helping us summarize this on the nonprofit newsfeed.
1: Thanks, George. This has
0: been using the whole whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to whole slash university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to GregThomasMusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you.